0: The resurrection is everything to our souls. The resurrection is like the heart that pumps life-giving blood to every part of the body. Uh, I feel like, at least from um, my point of view and growing up on the pews, that there was always such a great emphasis on the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus but never really felt like there was a lot about the resurrection of Jesus. It was always centered more to the death. And the death is, of course, extraordinarily important. It is uh, what part of the Lord's Supper memorial is about. Uh, But without resurrection, there is nothing. Without the resurrection of Jesus, his death is meaningless and our hope is in vain. And, And that's what the Apostle Paul spends his time writing about in his first letter to the Corinthians in the 15th chapter. And we're going to look at that this morning. And what Paul writes is not merely a discussion about the resurrection of Jesus. Really, the topic and the necessity of his writing is the resurrection of us. It is the resurrection of our bodies. And so the focus that he spends his time then is centers around, we will be raised because Jesus has been raised. It is important to consider that of all the days that we worship and we have a memorial supper to Jesus, that it's not on Thursday or Friday that we have a Lord's Supper to commemorate that he was betrayed and arrested and crucified, nor do we gather on Saturday to remember that he was in the tomb. But we gather on the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection. It is of the utmost importance. And that's where Paul feels that he needs to go with these Christians here as he writes to them. You'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. I need to remind you now of the most important thing. And one gets a feel from reading this letter that that might have very well been the problem and that this chapter now is the crux of the writing, the pinnacle of where Paul wants to go. The Corinthians have all kinds of problems. They are a mess and they are full of divisions. They are bickering with one another, destroying one another, claiming that they were baptized by certain individuals, thus claiming that to be better than another's baptism. And as Paul now winds down this letter, he says, I need to remind you of the essentials. I need to remind you of the most important thing. Let me bring you back to the heart of the gospel. Let me remind you of what all of this is about. In fact, his concern is this. You'll notice as he he speaks to this, he says, You have received it, verse 1, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. He says, this is something for your whole life. This is supposed to be the anchor point. What I have delivered to you, that which I have taught to you, which was handed down to me, is not something new, not something fancy, it is the Word of God, and it is to be the anchor point. He says, I want you to hold fast to it. In fact, I love passages one of these days I'll do a series called stand because I love it when I come across a verse that says I want you to stand in this and here's one of those places I have taught you something I've given you the gospel in which you stand this is your foundation this is your anchor point no matter what happens in life this is the thing that keeps you going this is the thing that picks you up off the ground this is the thing that gets you through the waves and winds of life. This is the thing through which you stand. And so here after reading all of this Corinthian letter of all of their problems and all of their issues, all of their divisions, he says, stand here. Here's the place to put the anchor down. Here's where you drive your foundation in this gospel of resurrection. And notice how he describes it in a past, present, and future tense. He says, this is a message you've already received this is something that's already been transmitted to you you're supposed to be standing in it right now presently and looking forward to the fact that is by which you will be saved This is the foundation by which you stand forward looking to the salvation to come. This hope of the resurrection, this knowledge that Jesus has raised from the dead is your anchor point so that you can look forward in life and say, I know in that day salvation is going to be mine. And so that's what we hold on to. And how he lays that out is so important because he ends it by saying, now, unless you've believed in vain. Unless you've let go of these things, unless you've let your grasp loose of that, unless you've put an anchor in something else besides this critical foundation... This critical message of resurrection, and notice how he kind of simplifies it. Most uh, writers and scholars believe that verses three through seven uh, are some kind of song, at least three through five or three through four, some kind of early Christian song, a, a message that had been proclaimed over and over again. Listen to the simplicity of it, as he says in verse three, "For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received." That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. He also appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. He says, This is the most important thing. This is, let me tell you, of first importance. This is everything. This is your hope. This is your foundation. And he says this in a very simple way Christ died for our sins. ...in accordance with the Scriptures. And notice twice that he says that. He says that in verse 3, Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And the point is that all of this is the plan of God. All that we did in our study of Luke that was moving through the life of Jesus... And as we watched events unfold, as Judas would betray, and as Jesus would be arrested, as He would go through scourgings and mockings, as He would be crucified, all of this was according to the plan of God. This is what the Scripture said the Messiah, the Savior, was going to do. He was going to die on behalf of the people. He would die for people's sins. And Isaiah 53, as many of you know, is one of the most notable prophecies. That speak about that salvation that would come as he would come and die for sins. And then He also mentions that you were going to be raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. And as we've observed and we talked about the third day a few weeks ago, we see that in Psalm 16, the statement, Ye will not experience corruption. The Holy One will not see decay. And so three days is the maximum to be able to avoid corruption. And you see other places in the Scriptures speaking that way. The third day imagery is so powerful in describing salvation and deliverance. And the imagery of Jonah, Jesus grabs onto tightly and says, just as Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man is going to be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. The Scriptures were all pointing to this. And Paul reminds them of this. A critical point that we have observed in our study that must be noted is that our faith stands in the Scriptures. This is the number one thing. This is the hope of resurrection. This number one point, the scriptures declare it. It is according to the scriptures that all these things happen. If you recall a few weeks ago, as Jesus was speaking to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, his point to them was this is what the scriptures said had to be fulfilled. This is the key thing. This is where your hope lies. Your hope is built in the resurrection, and that resurrection is built squarely in the Scriptures. The secondary hope is found in the eyewitness testimony, and that's what he goes on to describe. Verse 5, to Cephas, then to the twelve, It says in verse 6, over 500 brothers at once. Verse 7 to James and to all the apostles. Over and over again, there are resurrection appearances that occur. It doesn't just happen to the two men on the road to Emmaus. And it doesn't just happen to the the 10 without Judas and then to the 11 with Judas. Notice all the times that he appears. And if there's something to underline, I think I'm going to give you a few underlying points. But verse 6 is certainly one of them when he says, Most of whom are still alive Your number one faith Your foundation of faith of resurrection Is the fact that it is told to us in the scriptures That this would happen Prophesied and predicted by God The second is that there are eyewitness testimonies Such that the apostle Paul could write to the Corinthians and say If you don't believe me There's a bunch of people walking around that you could ask That have seen the risen Lord he appears to over 500 of them, and most of them are still alive right now. This being probably about 25 years later. And he says, go ask them. Is really the implication why I'll say hey, most of them are alive. He's not saying take my word for it. There's all kinds of people who have seen this. There's hundreds of people who have seen the risen Lord. And your faith is built upon the fact That all of these people, all of these disciples, all of these brothers have seen this. And so he goes through all of that imagery and says, this is your foundation. This is the heart of the gospel. But I want to suggest to you that it's not just simply acknowledging, well, this is the gospel message. The intention here is not for us to say, okay, well, I read verse 3 and 4 and we all believe, okay, yes, Jesus died, He was buried, He rose and people saw Him. Done. I have the gospel. Thank you very much. You don't have the gospel. You haven't appreciated the gospel, nor have you seen the gospel until it does something to you. Until it radically changes your life. It's not intended to just merely be points of information, academic knowledge by which we say, well, we read it in the Bible. Yes, he died, and we can prove that he was dead. There was a sword, out came out, spear, out came blood and water. He was buried. Yep, the tomb was sealed. Okay, proven historical fact. Yes, he was raised. Yep, the tomb was empty. Okay, I've got all the historical evidence. There you go. Over and over again, Paul uses this message to declare to us that this is supposed to cause something within those who hear this message. It is to cause us to see the grace of God. There in Acts chapter 20, he calls it the gospel, the grace of God. And we are to see the glory of Christ, as he was writing in his second letter, that the gospel is showing the glory of Christ so that we would walk worthy of this very message. The intention is not for you to go home today and say, well, I know that he died and was buried and rose Alright, I've got the critical three facts of life that's going to now mean by which I now stand and will be saved. The information is supposed to change everything. It's supposed to change everything. And listen to how Paul shows that in the next verse. Verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. Paul writes and says, this is transformational. He doesn't just simply say, oh, and I saw him too, period. Okay, now let's start talking about resurrection. He takes a paragraph here and says, now I want you to understand what this is supposed to do to you, O Corinthians. He says, he appeared to me last of all. And we need to make a point here about what that means, because that is really interesting that he says, I'm the last one. He doesn't just simply say, I saw him too, but he makes the point of all. Nobody else is going to see the risen Lord after the Apostle Paul. And that's very, very important. A lot of people want to go around saying they're apostles. Apostles, by definition, saw the raised Lord and Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I'm the last. Last of all. Of all these resurrection appearances, he says, he came to me last. I'm the final one. Nobody else is going to see him. So, for those who think they've seen the risen Lord, Paul has something to argue with that. As my father has told me stories of people who said... One lady said, "Saw Jesus sitting on a biscuit in her oven." Paul says, "Not possible. I'm the last of all. There's no other appearances that are going to occur. There is no visions. There's not going to be any insights. You're not going to stand on a mountain. You're not going to have Jesus appear to you and thus start a new mission, new revolution, new gospel, new anything." Last of all is a very important statement. I'm the end point of these resurrection appearances. I'm the last of this. I am the final apostle. I have seen these things. And notice the description also there and verse 8, as to one untimely born. And Paul does not mean by that the same thing that he just said a second ago, that I came last, that I came later. That's not what that, what that word means. And trying to get around that word and translate that into one word is extremely difficult. It is a word that is always used of a child being born prematurely. That it is a life that is unable to sustain itself. That's what that word is always used to describe. And that's what it means by untimely. It's not that he was untimely late. But that he was born too early untimely and thus could not sustain life. A premature and that's the idea of what he says. Now, what is he getting at by that? Why would you say it like that? Why did you say, now, I was the last person to see him. And it was premature. It was an untimely birth as if I had no life within myself. Well, listen to his explanation in verse 9. Why he sees himself this way. He says in verse 9, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. And here's the reason why he thinks of himself in this way. He says, because I persecuted the church of God. He perceives himself as completely unworthy and unfit to be called to apostleship. Because he persecuted Christians. And he's speaking in a state of wretchedness here and you really get that in verse 9 and 10, is it seems to me if I were to word it, the what He is saying is, somehow I'm an apostle too. I persecuted the church of God. I was killing Christians. Jesus' own words to me were, you're going against me, you're persecuting me. Mm-hmm. And here's him saying and somehow some way though I deserve death and should have no life within me whatsoever should have been left in those days as if a premature that could not live God has given me life and has shown me grace though I'm a persecutor though I am unfit though I am unworthy to it and That's the message of being untimely born that he's getting at He's saying, this isn't right, that this has happened by me. I should have been left for dead because of my sinfulness. But this is the way he perceived himself. He is unworthy to be called an apostle, unworthy to have all that has been bestowed upon him. I want us to consider that as Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, he could have said the opposite, and I don't know that we would have argued with him. We could have... Heard Paul say, I want you to know, Corinthians, that I am the greatest of the apostles. I am the most educated. I am the most honored and the most notorious. I was not some Galilean fisherman. I sat at the feet of one of the great teachers, Gamaliel. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. All of the Jews respected me. Part there with Stephen of stone and there is part of the right hand arm of the Sanhedrin. I am an important person before God. I am an important apostle. I wrote most of the books in your Bible. And he doesn't say any of that. He could have said, how, look how great I am. And you read the words when he says there in verse 9, I am the least of the apostles. I am unworthy in every way. I am something like a miscarriage or premature birth, unworthy of life, and should have been left for dead, is how he describes himself. Why does he do that? You know, we live in a society right now that says, you know, that's really bad to talk like that about yourself. You know, you're really, that's really a major negative self-esteem blow. You need to go get therapy, Paul. Uh, You need to have some better self-image. You know, you got to work on yourself here because, you know, if you don't love yourself, how can you love anybody? You know, that kind of thing. Why is he doing this? I want us to recognize that what he's displaying here is one of the radical changes is that when you are confronted with the gospel, it demands humility. When you grasp what verses 3 and 4 mean, that Jesus, according to the Scriptures, died for our sins, was buried, and according to the Scriptures was raised and was seen by many, the message of the gospel, the message of the death... And the burial and the resurrection of Jesus is to cause humility within us because it causes us to see who we really are. Paul does not put up a facade here and say, well, I am the greatest. I am the great apostle. And look at all the letters that I'm I'm writing and look how educated I was. And that's clearly why God chose me, because I am a great teacher and I was well educated. And I went to University of Tarsus and Gamaliel told me everything that I needed to know. And look how influential I was in all Judaism. He doesn't do that. Because the gospel causes you to see who you really are. And the gospel is to cause us to see how utterly unfit and unworthy we are to be called to this. And as I thought about this, I thought, Paul, if you are unworthy to your calling, then I don't even know what to describe myself. Because I read Paul and I go, wow, (laughs) look at you. I think he should be saying, look at me. He doesn't say, look at me. He says, woe is me. I'm unworthy. I'm the least. I'm unfit. I'm untimely born. And the gospel is always trying to impress that message upon us. Listen to how Paul wrote these words as he referred to all the world in Romans chapter 3 verse 9. For we have already charged that all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. There's not one that's righteous. And he keeps going. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. We don't like hearing those words. I want to say I'm righteous. I'm good. God needs me. When you are standing before the gospel, this is the only thing you can recognize is I'm utterly unworthy. I am completely undeserving. I am full of my sins. I am deep in sinfulness. And it is amazing that God has done anything toward me. How often the Gospels are trying to tell us that? What does he go on to say? Who did Jesus come to justify? Us righteous ones? The ungodly. Did he come for the sick or for the healthy? The people who think they're healthy? No. It's the great physician who's come for sick people. The Gospel forces us to see us as sick unrighteous, ungodly, enemies, wretched, vile, unfit, unworthy, to stand before Him. And the Apostle Paul takes this gospel message and he says, here's what it means. This is what it looks like to appreciate the good news of Jesus Christ, is to stand before His great deeds, His magnificent life, His amazing death on the cross and resurrection, and say, I can't believe you did that for somebody as wretched as me. Because I am undeserving. I am the least by which I should be granted anything like this. And what Paul does now is he doesn't say, now, what I want you to do is leave with that horrible thinking. All right, you're miserable and you're awful and you're wretched. Go. He now turns with that in verse 10 and says, that means it's going to change who I am. When I have the starting point of humility and recognizing how unworthy I am and I am ungodly, then that is going to begin the life transformation that God is looking for through the gospel. And that's what he describes here in in verses 9 and 10. As he goes from verse 9, he says, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because God turned him from persecutor to apostle. That's an amazing transformation that has occurred. You went from going full bore against Jesus to now being one of His ambassadors and representatives to the whole earth. A dramatic change has occurred. Paul has turned from enemy to disciple. He has been ungodly and now God has declared him righteous. And that's what he gets at in verse 10 when he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's not, well, because I was so useful and so good and so right. No. No you want to know why I'm now an apostle? Do you want to know why I'm no longer an enemy? Do you want to know why I now can be be pronounced righteous and not ungodly? By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's it. The gospel message is a recognition that His grace has to change everything about who I am and what I do. Because otherwise I should be left for dead. I should be the stillborn, the untimely born, left in death. But God's intervention, now we stand and say, it is by the grace of God that I can now seek God. It is by the grace of God that I can now move and act for God. In fact, notice how he says it there in verse 10. as He says, his grace toward me was not in vain. What a contrast to his concern back in verse 2. Back in verse 2, he says, you've received the gospel, you are to stand in the gospel by which you will be saved. Unless you've believed in vain, unless this message isn't transforming your life, and he says, it's transformed mine from persecutor to apostle, from ungodly to righteous, from enemy to now disciple. It has changed everything in my life. Is it gone in vain to you, O Corinthians? And I imagine he perhaps would have a parenthetical that says it sure sounds like it because you're fighting and dividing and having all kinds of problems and issues and you're not letting the gospel of resurrection change you. How can there be divisions? How can there be all that strife that's going on there in Corinth? How can there be the mess that's happening there? Have you believed in vain? Has this not message not been truly received that it would change you? You may have heard the formula, yes, He died, yes, He was buried, yes, He was raised. But it's not about knowing the formula. It's not about just simply saying, yep, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Yep, He came down from heaven. Yep, He lived a perfect life. Yes, He died. Yes, He raised three days later. It's about transformation. Has the grace of God been received and made? Is it changing who you are? Is it radically propelling you to live a different life than you had before? Think about the changed life of the Apostle Paul. Could there be a bigger 180 change of life than what you see in the Apostle Paul? The man who was willing to put Christians to the death was now willing to die for Christians. Amazing. Change of life. The gospel then changes everything about how we think. It changes everything about how we act, how we live. It is transformational in every way because we recognize that it is by the grace of God I am what I am. And listen to how he describes it all the more in verse 10. He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than all of them. And not that anybody misunderstand what he's saying because he's not pulling up his suspenders and going, yeah, look at me. I worked harder than everybody out there. He says, actually, no, it wasn't me. The end of verse 10, the grace of God that's in me. The reason why I worked as hard as I did and I give all that I give and I do all that I do. And I live how I live and I go to the extreme of agony and suffering and giving of my body. Is because the grace of God is working in me. That's what he says. The grace of God is what leads us to the change. And what he is stating to these Corinthians is that if you are not experienced that life change where your actions are driven by the grace of God, then you haven't experienced the gospel message. You haven't experienced what grace looks like at all. You may know the formula, but you don't know the formula. You haven't experienced it. Because only when you truly appreciate who you are and where you came from and how God's grace has intervened in your life, then you have to change. You can't help but change. You can't help but give your whole life to Him. You ever ask the question, how could Paul do all the things that he did? And you read about, you know, shipwrecked all these times, you know, snakes biting him, stone, left for dead, all. How can you do that, Paul? Here's the answer. Here's the answer. Because you see yourself as unworthy, ungodly, and how God has intervened by his grace, and I have to do something about it. That's what grace does, that's what the gospel accomplishes. The gospel accomplishes that we will propel ourselves into seeking Him and trying to serve Him because He's been so good. And that's why I love that description of, I worked harder than any of them, but don't mistake me what I mean by working harder. The grace of God is what causes me to work harder. What God has done for me is what propels me to live this kind of life. This is the reason I do what I do is what Paul is saying. It leads us to that work, hard, working hard. I want to submit to you that grace does not lead us to laziness. The Gospel, nobody who is influenced by the Gospel goes, that is really exciting news about Jesus that now I no longer have to be dead in my sins. Sit down. Nobody ever did that in the Scriptures. Not anybody who ever understood the Gospel. The gospel does not lead us to laziness. It is our hope of resurrection that we stand in that propels us to move forward. It gives us the greater effort. It is the thing that we need when we are in discouragement that pushes us onward. It is the thing when life is getting tough and we don't know how we're going to get through when you're crushed by trials, when you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, when whatever it is that is afflicting you physically, emotionally, spiritually, when you are crushed to the point of death, this is the message that puts you through. That He has extended grace to me and I will continue to go forward. And you see that in Paul's writings over and over again. This is the thing that propelled him. Recognizing his ungodliness and sinfulness and how unworthy he is that God had chosen him And no longer put him in the realm of death as he deserved for killing followers of Jesus. But now declared him righteous. Made him a disciple. And called him to apostleship. This is the reason why we do all that we do. It is the basis of all of our actions. In fact, in this very letter a couple chapters earlier, he said... If you aren't acting out of these motivations, then it's worthless and empty. Remember how you'd say there in chapter 13, if I don't have love, I can move mountains, I can do all kinds of things. But so what? The gospel is the reason why we do what we do. Otherwise, it's empty and vain. The reason why we serve, the reason why we attend, the reason why we assemble, the reason why we worship, the reason why we give of ourselves, the reason why we teach, the reason why we do anything that we do is because of this gospel message. That's what motivates all of my decisions, all of my actions, all of my processes in life. If it's not, then it's vain. Think about it today. There's all kinds of people doing wonderful things in this world, but if it's not by the grace of God, what is it? If it's not for the honor and praise and glory of God, it's not of use. Because everything is supposed to be driving at God. Everything we do drives around that. I submit to you it's not possible to understand and appreciate the resurrection And not let it change us. It's not possible to appreciate the impact of the resurrection of Jesus and ourselves. And not let that change us. That is where we stand. That is the good news. To put it this way, the gospel now, it redirects our energies away from ungodly behavior. It redirects us away from a life of sin, a life of selfishness. It redirects us away from selfish thinking and drives us now toward the grace of God and Godward thinking and Godward behavior. It's not enough for you tomorrow as Monday rolls around to say, "Okay, I need to stop doing bad and start doing good. I need to stop the sin and do the righteous. That's all well and good. And I hope that's in your mind. The success of that decision comes from recognizing this gospel message. We will not win in our battle with Satan and our battle of sin, with just simply saying, "I need to do better." We will win when we recognize what God has accomplished that becomes a motivator beyond just simply a rule of right and wrong. Think about the nation of Israel, how historically accurate that truth is. When they lost their love for God, when they lost their yearning for His glory, when they boiled it down to just simply, I've got to do this and I've got to do that, the wheels came completely off. Such that by the time Jesus walks on the scene, you've got a whole group of in Judaism. You've got Pharisees and scribes. And it's all about the law, but it's not for the glory of God. It's not for the right reason. It's not because they love the Lord. It's just, well, this is what we have to do. This has been revolutionary for me. I think for many of you it will be too Because I don't think I'm the only one Who kind of grew up in the pews and thought Okay, you just got to do it this way This is the things you do And these are the things you don't do Don't do this, do this Okay, very good That's not the gospel message That's the outcome of the gospel message The gospel message Is look at what your Lord has done for you That's why you will stop doing these selfish things and start doing what God has accomplished. This is then the message by which we are being saved. It is an experience of life transformation. And what it calls for us then is to recognize that the gospel transmits and changes everything about who we are, what we believe, all that we know, all that we do, It changes us and transmits it to the world so that all can see the glory of God. And the Apostle Paul says, look at me. I worked as hard as I could because God had done so much for me. And that's what the message of the Gospel does for us. That's what we rest upon. That's what our life must depend upon. That is the foundation. That is the anchor point that we put into the ground. Jesus has come. He has died for sins. He is raised from the dead. And that message gives us life. It gives us life now. And by which we stand today. And by which we are being saved. In the day of judgment. Can you see transformation in who you are and what you're doing is a call to stand in the gospel of grace to be cleared righteous by God and move to act to the praise of God's glory. I pray that's what you'll do this morning, that you'll see what your Lord has done for you, that you'll turn away from your sins, that you'll be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins not because of these are steps on a screen, but because of what God has accomplished, what the, our great God has done, that the cross and the empty tomb and the resurrection all become these pieces that propel our lives every single day. It's all about that. That's where our hope lies. As we go forward through this series on Risen, We're going to see more about how the resurrection changes everything about how we live. But it all starts with knowing the gospel. Are you ready to receive the gospel this very morning? Turn away. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?